we're going to actually wrap up our study of the satisfied life. Uh, I hope that it's really just the beginning of a lifelong study, and we'll close out with some remarks that kind of point to that this morning. But the whole idea of uh, satisfaction and what it means to find true satisfaction in this life is, uh, as compared to some of the phony substitutes. And so if you've got your Bible, we're not going, we, we've, been, we've looked at Proverbs, we've looked at Song of Solomon a little bit, Ecclesiastes some, or some of our live groups are still studying Ecclesiastes, but uh, because of where we are in this study and wrapping it up, and because of the gospel necessity that Solomon presents us with, I want you to turn to John chapter 6 for the final message in this series this morning. John chapter 6, we're going to look to begin with at verses 47 through 51, but we'll tackle much of this chapter. And I'm praying that even as we read these verses this morning, that the Spirit of God will take these verses, so many that we will just not even have time to quite um, expound this morning like I would like to as we draw some of the major conclusions. But uh, let's read verses 47 through 51 because that is... um, that's kind of the heart of this whole chapter and, and certainly the heart of much of what John has to say in his gospel and a description of what Solomon would say that uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes, the world seems to be missing when it comes to this life of satisfaction. Jesus says, I assure you, anyone who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. That's an important statement, one of seven I am statements in John's gospel, and we'll talk about those words, I am, again in a moment. But he says, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh or my body. Father, we thank you that we are invited to freely partake of the bread of life. And Lord, that bread we know brings true, lasting satisfaction. And so, Father, as we Look at this passage, Lord. I pray for every man, woman, boy and girl of all ages that are in this place this morning. And I pray that if they're hungering, if they're thirsty for something deeper, that this day, Lord, they would have a face-to-face encounter with you that would be absolutely life-changing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. I heard the story of a man who had done what he had enjoyed doing, and he was able to fish many, many years ago, and not only fish, but sometimes uh, fish enough for himself and to sell some fish to others and, uh, and provide a little bit of a fish market. And so one day he had been out and doing what he enjoyed doing. He'd been fishing, and uh, some of you would like to be able to do that for a living, right? A bad day fishing is better than a good day at work sometimes, right? And, and so he had been out fishing. He had kind of caught what he thought was uh, his quota for that day. And back in these days, Stan, I don't know if there would have been a limit or not on what he was catching. But anyway, he had had his fun. He had caught his fish, and he had cleaned them, and he had 
taken on the market. He was relaxing. He was, he was just kind of enjoying the rest of the day. And, a, and another man came by and, and knew that he was a fisherman there that had provided so many places with fish. He said, what are you doing just kind of chilling out here? And he said, well, I'm, I caught my catch for the day and I've sold my fish and I'm just enjoying the rest of the day. He goes, what would you expect me to be doing? And this very wealthy man said, well, I would think that you could go catch some more fish and then you could sell those. And he goes, well, why do I want to catch more fish and sell those? And he said, well, so that you can bring in more money. Well, what do I want to do with more money? He goes, well, you could, for one thing, buy a little bit bigger boat than the one you've got. Why do I need a bigger boat? Well, because you want more equipment. You want better equipment. And you want to get to where you can catch more fish, sell that, make more money. What am I going to do with more money? He said, then you're going to buy an even bigger boat. And then you're going to uh, stock that boat with some nets. And then you're going to really start to bring in the fish. And then you're going to be selling a lot more fish, and then you're going to be making a lot more money. He said, well, what am I going to do with a lot more money? He goes, well, at that point, you'll be wealthy enough to where then you won't have to do anything but just kind of enjoy yourself. And he said, well, what do you think I'm doing right now? In other words, you can get caught up in this trap of this world to where nothing is ever enough. You never come to a place of true satisfaction And the bottom line is, without Jesus, this world really offers us very little lasting satisfaction. And so by speaking of himself as the bread of life, he's going to give us some instructions on how to find true satisfaction here in John chapter 6. Now, I will say this about the word satisfaction, because there is a fine line between contentment and complacency. And so sometimes if we refer to being satisfied as complacent, then we're in trouble because we never want to reach a point of complacency. And it's when we get to the end of this chapter, I think we'll see that, that there's so much more that many of us never tap into. And so we become spiritually complacent. That's not what he's talking about with being satisfied with him as the bread of life. When we look at John's gospel, we see that there's something that is a deep contentment in the heart of every Christian. And, and so as we close this study on this wisdom literature and, and, and our study of the satisfied life, I want us to talk about lasting satisfaction. Now remember in Proverbs, we found out that we needed this awesome knowledge of, jo- of God, the be- fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and so we need this awesome knowledge of God, but we also needed an intimate knowledge of God, and that intimate knowledge of God we saw in um, John's gospel in chapter 1 because it paralleled chapter uh, 8 in Proverbs because Jesus was the very personification of wisdom. And and then in the Song of Solomon, we saw that that covenant relationship that brings true satisfaction into our lives is pictured in the context of marriage and in family. And so when we see that higher end or purpose of marriage, that it causes us to grow deeper in our relationship with God and in our relationships with our family. Ecclesiastes, we saw that life was full of love and passion and and hard work, but it all seemed meaningless if we didn't bring in the God factor or the gospel factor. And I'll tell you, church, the gospel changes everything. And everything we do in our life and everything we do as a church should come back to gospel influence, gospel impact on you first and then through you to other people. It's all about the difference the gospel makes. And there are all types of depths and, depths and insights that come with that. But I want us to think of, of what this is 
uh, presented to us, this chapter 6 of John's gospel. It, it, the, consider the context of all of John. John chapter 1 and verse 4 says that in him was life, and that life was the light of men. In other words, you're not truly living until you meet Jesus. In John chapter 20 and verse 31, I, I always want to encourage students of God's word to know who the author was, and why they were writing. And I love John because he tells us again and again, here's why I'm writing. You know, in 1 John, in chapter 5 and 13, in his letter, at the end of the letter, he says, these things have I written to you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And so if you ever wonder, am I truly born again, study 1 John. But in John's gospel, in chapter 20 and verse 31, he says, these things have I, have I written that you might believe. So he's writing, John, this gospel so that you would believe in Jesus, that he is the Son of God, and that believing you would have life in his name. So he's saying there are people out here who aren't really living, they just think they are, and I want them to have life. In John chapter 10 and verse 10, he says, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy, but I've come that you might have, say it again, life and that you might have it more abundantly or to the fullest. In John chapter 11, verse 25, at the tomb of Lazarus when Mary and Martha are heartbroken, and she says, look, I know that in the resurrection that he'll rise again. And Jesus said, wait a minute, wait a minute, you need to know something about me. I am. There's those two words again, right? I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. In John chapter 14 and verse 6, after Jesus had talked about going to prepare a place for his followers, describing heaven and all that it would be for those that he would come back and call to himself one day, he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And that's why we believe in the exclusivity of the gospel. There is no other way to heaven other than through Jesus Christ. And we have to make no apologies for saying that because if Jesus was not truthful when he said that, then he's a liar and we need to have nothing to do with Christianity whatsoever. If there's any other way, any other religion, any other amount of works that could earn our way to heaven, then Jesus would be made out to be a liar. So I see as Lewis said, he's Lord, liar, or lunatic. You need to decide. But he can't be anything less than fully God, fully man, the Son of God, if he claimed to be God in the way, the truth, and the life, other than a liar or a lunatic, which we certainly would reject. And then in John chapter 4, we see this story of a woman at a well, and he says, look, if you'd only ask of me, then I would have given you living water that is, that's kind of welling up or overflowing to eternal life, true, lasting satisfaction. And then we come to John chapter 6. The point, apart from Jesus, according to John, we are nothing more than dead men and women, spiritually dead. 1 John three fourteen says, we are those who have passed from death unto life. That means that if you're here this morning and you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, then you are nothing more than a walking dead person. You know, the walking dead is more than just a TV show that's uh, been real popular lately, right? If you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you may be walking and talking and breathing this morning, but spiritually, the Bible says you're still dead. 
dead, as Ephesians says, in your trespasses and sins. And so John chapter 6 gives us an awesome picture of satisfaction. Jesus, in the beginning of this chapter, he's fed the 5,000, five loaves, remember, two fish. A young lad had been brought to Jesus by Andrew. He says, here's a lad, he's got a lunch, got a bag lunch, not a lot for so many people, but Jesus took it and he blessed it and he multiplied it and he fed 5,000. In verse 12 of John chapter 6, it says that they ate and they were full. When they, when they were full, he told his disciples, collect the leftovers so that nothing was waited, wasted. That, that word full means to be totally satiated, completely satisfied. Actually, the, the Greek word is the same Greek word that's used in a different form for gluttony later on. You know, uh, gluttony was when it became a lifestyle of always eating that way. He's saying, listen, when you t- partake of me, you're going to be fully satisfied. But those who had this bread, where he broke it and he multiplied it, they would be hungry again. That happens. I mean, yesterday I had one of my favorite meals. I really did. I had a Chick-fil-A sandwich for lunch. I mean, you just can't beat a Chick-fil-A sandwich. Not much is more, that's, that's preacher food, you know, Chick-fil-A. Not, not much can satisfy that craving at lunchtime, and they didn't pay me to do this advertisement. You can't go and eat there after church anyway, so don't salivate too much. But I was very satisfied with my lunch. Two hours later, after watching our nephew in a lacrosse match, I was ready to stop. I bet Pastor Ben knows what we drove by. A Dairy Queen, yeah, exactly. We drove by Dairy Queen. It's time for a blizzard. And that sandwich was great, but it only satisfied for so long, right? And, and so that's the way it is in this life. You know, you, you eat until you're, you're full, and some of us, we go to the buffets or whatever, but it won't be long until we are hungry again. Or at least until we have an appetite in this nation, we don't always know what true hunger is. But we're craving something more. It doesn't last but for so long. And so Jesus appears, and, and, and by the way, you think about this, this context here. You know, he, he was preaching. You, you feed a lot of people, and they just come. They show up. And I'm not opposed to using pizza or Chick-fil-A sandwiches or or wings to draw a crowd because, you know what, it works, right? And Jesus fed people and the crowd was there, but he didn't want them to focus on that. There was something that there was more important. The reason he wanted their attention was that he was, there was something much more important that he wanted to communicate. They had a hunger for something, and they didn't always know what they were hungry for. They didn't always know what they needed and how to find lasting satisfaction so that they didn't have to keep coming back because of that emptiness that had reoccurred in their life. And so we learned some principles. When you get down to verses 26 and following, when he's explaining this, you know, he had, the disciples had gone over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is really like a large lake, and, and, and so they had gone over to the other side. Jesus came to them while they were on their way, walking on the water. So the crowds knew that he didn't leave in the boat, But somehow he ended up over there anyway. But he came walking to them on the water, another miracle. So he's fed the 5,000 with with five loaves and two fish, 5,000 plus women and children, a big crowd that day. And so that was a miracle. Then he came walking to them on the water. So people are, are looking for Jesus. 
And one thing he's going to have to say to this crowd, first and foremost, if you're going to experience lasting satisfaction, is you need to give up something. And that is, number one, deny a religious entitlement mentality. Deny that religious entitlement mentality. Look back at verse 26, verses 26 through 31 here in chapter 6. Let me go back to verse 25. I want you to see, they found him on the other side of the sea. And they said to him, Rabbi or teacher, when did you get here? (laughs) Jesus answered, I assure you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and you were filled. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. Remember God said when he was baptized, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He was the one sent from the Father as one with the Father. And he says, or they ask the question, what can we do to perform the works of God? You know, these miracles are kind of exciting to see and to experience the benefits of as well. And Jesus replied, this is the work of God that you believe in the one he has sent. Well, that's great. Yeah, okay, Jesus, we believe it. We, we want to trust you. We want to follow you. Here we are. But again, what sign then are you going to do so that we may see and believe you, they ask? What are you going to perform? And so many churches across the world today, people are showing up and they're saying, man, I hope they entertain me. I hope they perform something. And I hope they work some miracles today so that man, it will strengthen my faith. And they celebrate everything in the world except for Jesus himself. He says, our fathers, or they said, our fathers ate man in the wilderness. That was pretty cool. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. So they're like, man, your turn. You're doing some pretty spectacular things that kind of remind us of some things that Moses did and some things that our ancestors experienced. And so bring it on. Let's see those signs. Let's see those wonders. Let's, let's see the miracles. And the truth is, they sought Jesus. Yes, they came looking for him, but they sought him with the wrong motives. Their motives were not to first and foremost have a relationship with the living God through his son, Jesus Christ, to know him personally and intimately. It was, if, if that's If that's something that will get us the byproducts we're looking for, that's great. But that wasn't what they were really after. And listen, I believe in miracles. I believe God is able to do today what he has always been able to do. I believe miracles still take place. I believe there are people in this congregation this morning, and if if you think, man, in my life, I've experienced something that can't be naturally explained. It had to be supernatural. God showed up, and I've experienced a miracle. Would you raise your hand? How many of you have experienced that? So it looks like at least half of you would say, man, I've experienced something that is unexplainable apart from the miraculous. I believe in miracles. I believe God still heals. He still delivers. He can still multiply. Some of you are like, man, I've seen it at bill time, right? And he has multiplied the loaves and the fishes, and somehow we were able to pay the bills. Listen, God is a miracle-working God. I believe that it's okay and even encouraged 
to pray for miracles and to say, God, we need you to intervene miraculously here. And we've seen God do that as a church. Many families here. But listen, here's where we get in trouble. If in those experiences we start worshiping the miracle more than we worship Jesus, we're in trouble. If we begin to seek the miracle more than we seek Jesus, we're in trouble. We still need to have that but-if-not kind of faith that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had when they stood before Nebuchadnezzar and said, our God is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace, but even if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow because God also has permission to bring us on into glory. And Stephen had just as much faith as they did, and he was stoned to death. But the miracle was that he saw the Son standing at the right hand of the Father and stepped right into his presence. And so I believe in miracles, but I don't put my faith in miracles. I don't put my trust in miracles, and I don't put my hope in miracles. My faith and my trust and my hope is in Jesus Christ and in Jesus alone. And so in that moment when I come to die, I'm not going to be saying, just give me one more miracle. I'm not going to say I have faith in the things that I've seen you do. I'm going to say, give me Jesus. And when God uses those things to point me to Jesus, that becomes the goal. So many times we develop an entitlement mentality like, God, if I'm your child, then you owe me a miracle. There's even televangelists who do TV programming by saying, come and watch this show and learn how to claim your miracle. And so this morning in our life group, we were talking about sometimes the millennials have a little bit of an entitlement mentality, but probably they got that from their parents on many occasions, right? And so the millennials probably can blame their parents for more stuff than we can criticize them for on many occasions because it was the child that kind of grows up and mom or dad gave them a a trophy or a ring or whatever it is now for everything that they ever did or they... they um, uh, were given anything they cried for in the grocery line. You ever notice they, they know where to put all the candy in the grocery store right up front, right? And so the kid cries, and mom don't want to hear the crying, so she goes ahead and gets it. And, and so the kids develop an entitlement mentality, and so many times spiritually we have that same entitlement. Because I'm your son, God, because I'm your daughter, then I don't deserve to go through that. Listen, anything short of hell is grace, <laughs> Anything in this life that we experience short of hell is the grace of God because that's what we deserve. And so when we are more in love with things, listen, if your children are so spoiled that they they fall more in love with the things that you give them rather than you as mom or dad, then you know somewhere along the way you miss the boat. In the same way as the children of God, if we are more in love with the things that God can do for us rather than in love with God himself, then we could be missing the whole point of the relationship. And so ask yourself, do you have a religious entitlement mentality? They were like, we are the Jews, we are God's people here. Our forefathers did this, what are you going to do? Our forefathers were blessed this way, how are you going to bless us? God's done these works in the past. How is he going to work through you today? Jesus came offering redemption and life by the very grace of God, which is not earned or deserved. 
We're not entitled to it. He just loves us. He just loves us, and he offers us life and life everlasting. And when you receive something that you feel you're not entitled to, then you're overwhelmingly grateful forever. And it gives you something that is lasting and real. And so go ahead and deny a religious entitlement mentality to where you're like, well, God owes me this. And let's find out how to get into real lasting satisfaction. Secondly, I want you to see, and by the way, in verse 32, before we get to the second point here, Jesus said, I assure you, Moses didn't give you bread from heaven, but my father gives you the real bread from heaven. Just, just keep in mind that this, this was something God was doing for a particular reason at a particular time. And, and if you want to embrace the manna, if you want to embrace what you feel entitled to, you will always settle for less than what God has to offer. And so even if we do have this spiritual entitlement mentality, well, God, you need to do this for me. Or I believe, Lord, I'll really worship you and serve you if you intervene in this particular way. When we take that entitlement approach, we'll always settle for less than what God truly wanted to give us in giving us himself. And so secondly here, demonstrate real faith in Jesus. Real faith in Jesus is trusting him receiving what he truly has to offer. Look at verse 33. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said, Sir, Lord, give us, give us this bread always. And he said in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Jesus told them, no one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. Isn't that what he told the woman at the well? It will become like living water on the inside of you. But as I told you, you've seen me, and you do not believe. It's it's not real. You're after all of these secondary things, these, these fringe benefits of the faith, so to speak, but you're not really after me. And he says, so you, you haven't expressed real faith. But as I told you, you've seen me and yet you do not believe. Everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me will never be cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those that he has given me, but should raise them up at the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. In other words, he's saying, listen, here's what I'm all about, is to bring you to the place, and this is why John was also writing this gospel and recording these words, to bring us to the place where we're saying, listen, I believe in Jesus. I trust in him. I completely give my life to him. Whatever he decides to do is great because he's God and I'm not but I surrender myself in real faith, trusting in Jesus alone for my salvation. He said, yeah, your ancestors gave you manna. The word manna meant, what is it? You know, remember in, in the Hebrew, they, they, they didn't recognize it. They didn't know what it was that was being sent down from heaven. And so they were saying, what is it? Or you could say, it, literally, it means what it is. It is what it is. Don't you hate that statement when you ask somebody something or you're talking about something and they go, well, it is what it is. Well, you haven't said anything. I know, but Pastor Robbie, it is what it is. 
Duh. Yeah, you know, you're like, of course it is what it is. And, and that's, that's all they could come up with with the naming of this manna. It's, it, it is what it is. What is it? I don't know, but it came down from heaven. But they had to keep going back. They had to keep gathering. And he's saying, remember, you, you had to keep going back. You had to keep gathering that bread. And eventually you were grumbling and complaining about that. That wasn't good enough anymore. You were tired of the same old, same old. I mean, folks, I used to love Cheerios. But after you had a few kids in a minivan, right, eating Cheerios all the time because that's what you give them in the car, after a while you're like, these are kind of bland. This gets old after a while, and the manna had gotten old. What is it that doesn't get old? Jesus said, I am the bread of life. In the Greek, that is ego, I, ami, am. Why is that important? In the English language, we would just say I am, no big deal. But for those of you who speak Spanish or some other Latin-based languages, you get it. Because in in Spanish, I could say I am by saying the, the word soy. Soy is just the verb, but the the word I is understood. But in Spanish, if you say yo soy, you're being emphatic. You're saying I am. And so you use the pronoun when you're trying to be emphatic. And the same was true of the Greek. Jesus could have just said a me in the Greek, and that would have been I am the bread of life. But he said ego a me. And so those Jewish listeners there would have said, he's claiming to be the I am that I am of the Old Testament. He's claiming to be Yahweh God right here. And they would be right. That is who he was claiming to be. With all seven of those I am statements, when he said, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way, the truth, and the life, When he made those statements, he was claiming to be deity. And he was saying, you will never be satisfied with less than God. Well, where do we find God? I am the bread of life. You can be filled and satisfied with me. Your religious background is no substitute, he was saying, for real faith. And you're not going to go to heaven this morning, and you're not going to have a relationship with Jesus Christ just because your parents or your grandparents were Christian. You didn't get it by osmosis somehow, just being in a Christian environment. And you're certainly not a Christian just because you grew up in the United States of America where 80% claim to be Christian, but less than 10% actually demonstrate having a born-again relationship with Jesus Christ. And so he was saying, you've got a religious background and you've got this entitlement mentality, but you haven't expressed real faith in me. You haven't truly believed. And he gets into that in verses 41 through 49, he says, therefore the Jews started complaining about him. Just like they had complained about the manna, right? Because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They were saying, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I have come down from heaven? They understood his claim to deity, even if certain modern readers of the text miss it. Jesus answered them, stop complaining among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. 
It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Another claim to deity, I am the I am. I am the bread of life. Everyone who has listened to and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. He's saying, I've been in God's presence, and now I'm in your presence. And then those verses we read to begin with, I assure you, anyone who believes has eternal life, I am the bread of life, I'm the real substance that you're looking for. He's saying, your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness, but they are dead. And every work of righteousness that you can depend on other than a relationship with Jesus Christ is a dead work. And though works without faith are dead, so is faith. Though faith without works is dead, so are works without faith. And so he says, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat of it and not die. The moment we partake, we start to live. We have the eternal quality of life, even this side of heaven. That's the abundant life. And he says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. He's going to lay that flesh down. We would be taught how to partake of that flesh, and and he would illustrate that or model that with the Lord's Supper when he would say, this is my body which is broken for you. Take, eat in remembrance of me. This is my blood which is shed for you. Drink this in remembrance of me. A very spiritual and powerful truth. And and that that bread and that, that cup no more literally becomes the blood and the body of Christ than the living water of chapter 4 literally became the Holy Spirit. But it became a beautiful picture of that that reminds us constantly that I need the body and the blood of Christ. And so we don't come to God on our own terms. And according to this passage, we don't come to God on our own time. There might be somebody sitting here saying, you know, one day, one day I'm really going to get right with Jesus. One day I'm going to come to God Not only do you not know how many days you have on this planet, only God knows that, you don't know how many days the Holy Spirit will contend with you. You may be saying one day, listen, there's an area in my life I haven't surrendered to God, one day I'm going to get that right. Or you may be saying one day I'm going to come by faith into a relationship with Jesus Christ, but pastor, not yet. You don't know that after today the Holy Spirit will continue to draw you and continue to convict you, and continue to contend with you. It's been said that the same sun that hardens, or or that melts the wax, also hardens the clay, and as you allow your heart to grow harder, you don't know how long the, the Spirit will continue to draw you. Whenever the Spirit of God is drawing you and working in your life, you come right then, not on your own terms. It's not like You're an ambassador for the United States going to God or any other country for that matter and saying, let me just kind of work a deal here. It's not like me going to a used car salesman and saying, let me see if I can come away feeling like a winner here. We come to God only on his terms, only on his terms. And when we come to God on his terms, we express real faith. And then finally, for those of us who have experienced that, we need to do the third step in this process. We need to deepen our relationship with Jesus. 
deepen your lasting satisfaction continues as you deepen that relationship with Jesus Christ. You are a vine now plugged into a branch, and you need to continue to draw from the one that you're abiding in. So look at verse 50. We saw it a moment ago. This is the bread that comes down from heaven. I am the living bread, verse 51. Verse 52, at that time the Jews argued among themselves, how can this man give his flesh to eat? They were trying to make it literal again, as some still do in their theology today. So Jesus said to them, I assure you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. This is something you've got to partake deeply of. He says, anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day because my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. He's, he's describing how real the spiritual domain is here. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood lives in me, and I in him, just as the living Father sent me, I, have, I live because of the of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. In other words, we've come to the Father through the Son, and now we're experiencing lasting satisfaction as all that flows from the Father flows through the Son and into us by His Spirit. This is the bread that came down from heaven. It is not like the man of your fathers ate and they died. Why? Because this is lasting satisfaction. This is not going to let you down. The one who eats this bread will live forever, he says. Not talking about coming to a place where we we gain more cognitively, where we just know more about God, but where we truly know him, where we experience him on a deeper level, deeper and richer in our partaking. Dr. Bailey Smith, in his book, Real Evangelism, Dr. Smith went to be with the Lord last month. In his book, Real Evangelism, he had a chapter titled titled this, Shallow Living from the Deeper Life. And and he was arguing that we often use words like discipleship and intimate worship to talk about a deeper life. And he says, but we start this shallow living because we get away from the gospel itself and the importance of knowing him and making him known. And so we grow in our cognitive knowledge of him, and we know a lot more about him. And he quotes F.E. Marsh, who says, There is a spurious holiness that looks at itself with satisfied, and here's that word again, complacency. Satisfied complacency. And criticizes others with this critical spirit of censure. Well, I know so much more than you. And that dear saint of God, that, that, that woman of God or that man of God who, who may not look like much outwardly may have a, a richer walk with Jesus than you ever know. They may be living a more consecrated life and knowing him and making him known. While we can, with our vast understanding, have complacency. Because we know it, but we don't practice it. Many of us already know more than we could ever put to practice anyway. But are we putting it into practice on a daily basis? When I was a seminary student, I really enjoyed all of my professors. (laughs) 
But the ones that I enjoyed the most were the ones who continued to be practitioners, so to speak, right? The ones that I enjoyed the most when I was in seminary were, were not just the ones who studied the Bible and knew the Hebrew and the Greek and they knew systematic theology and maybe they went to school because they always dreamed of being a professor anyway. But I wanted to have that one who was the practitioner. That one who was serving in a church as a pastor or as a staff member. That, that one who was serving with the youth group. That one that I said, you know, he not only knows the Bible, but man, he is in the real world with people in a ministry setting on a regular basis. And he knows how this stuff is applied. Those, those were the professors that I wanted to spend time with. We've got a lot of Christians who want to know more. And we're kind of like the end of that movie, The Kingdom of the Crystal Skulls. The last, any Indiana Jones fans here remember at the end of that movie, the lady like is in the room with the, those creatures, aliens, whatever they were, with the crystal skulls. And the last crystal skull gets into place so that now this vast knowledge it can be made available. And she's like, give me more, give me more. I want it all. I want to know everything. And, you know, and then all of a sudden just, she just explodes. <laughs> I just gave it away for somebody, man. Her head explodes. Some of us, it's like we're just soak it up, soak it up, soak it up till my head explodes. And God is saying, go practice what you already know. The satisfied life in Christ. Enjoy him. This is man's primary purpose or chief end, that we might glorify God and enjoy him forever. And forever begins now. Enjoy knowing him and making him known. Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, and this has become a life verse for me, verses 10 and 11. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Man, I want my knowledge of him to be real and practical and experiential so that I can make him known to others. Do you know him that way? Are you living shallow in the deeper life and using that as an excuse? Would you bow your heads with me this morning?